0: Now let's turn in our Bibles to John's Gospel and chapter 1. We've spent quite a lot of time looking into what is commonly called the prologue of John's Gospel. Now, as this is the final message in this series, I'm going to read the whole of the prologue, although we will just be talking about the concluding four or five verses of this Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So ends the prologue. That passage of Scripture is like the overture to an opera in that an overture introduces all the musical themes that will later be developed. And so in these 18 verses, John introduces the great massive truths that he will now begin to illustrate in the rest of his gospel. And I trust if you haven't already spent a considerable amount of time studying John's gospel, that this time in the prologue will serve to encourage you to do it. Well, now. I want to talk to you in this final message in this brief series on what I would call the ramifications of the visit. That, of course, is predicated on the idea that we've been talking about a remarkable visitation from space. There's great interest at the present time in all kinds of extraterrestrial activity. Lots of people are wondering if we are alone in the universe. Well, we don't know if we are But one thing we do know is that this planet did have a superlative extraterrestrial visitation 2,000 years ago. The language that John uses to describe that extraterrestrial visitation, simply the Word became flesh. That is the key to what he's saying. In fact, that is the key to understanding the whole of his gospel. We're going to say, all right... Well, we're trying to understand what it means that the Word became flesh, but then we want to go a step further, and we say, oh, all right, well, we've got some idea of what it means that the Word became flesh, but so what? What possible difference does it make in my life? And then we're going to ask the question, now what? What do I do with this information that the Word became flesh? I want to suggest to you three things that should come out of our understanding that the Word became flesh. And the first one is that we should have a new sense of conviction that comes from seeing His glory as we read about it in the Scriptures. There should be a new sense of conviction that comes from seeing His glory. And then secondly, there should be a new sense of blessing that comes from receiving His grace. And thirdly, there should be a rock-solid assurance that comes from knowing that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. So those are the three things that we'll cover in the next few minutes. First of all, then, this idea that the Word became flesh. I don't want to go over the things that I've been talking about, but it is necessary just to remind you that, what they, that this prologue opens up with John talking about something called the Logos. To the Greeks, that would immediately trigger a recollection that their philosophers had talked about a logos that was the rational idea behind the whole of the universe." To the Hebrews, to whom John was also writing, it would remind them of the fact that in the beginning, God said, Let there be light, and there was. And then God said this, and it was. In other words, it was through the word of God that the heavens and earth were created. And so both Jews and Greeks had this fundamental idea that behind the universe, as they understood it, there was, in the Greek sense, a rational idea it was not personal. It was a power. It was a dynamic. But as far as the Hebrews were concerned, that rational idea was God himself. So when John uses the term, the word, he is immediately gathering in all the people in the mixed cultures that he was addressing, and they would immediately have some idea what he was talking about. And this is what he says. He says, this word, had been with God in a bygone eternity, before all things began that we understand. Secondly, he says that the Word had been in an intimate relationship in eternity with God, and in fact was God himself. Moreover, he said the Word had created all things. In fact, there's nothing that exists that he had not created. He then goes on to say that the Word is the source of all life and the, the moral light and the sense of conscience that human beings have comes from Him as well. This is the Word. He goes on to explain now that the Word became flesh. He said the Word was God, but became flesh. The difference between was and became is significant. The idea that the word was God points to him being eternally God. But the statement that he became flesh points now to the fact that God now takes on at a specific time our humanity. And he is talking about the incarnation, which simply is a long word that means the taking upon himself of our flesh. And this is the superlative statement at the base of the Christian message. It is this that God visited our planet in the person of Jesus Christ. Augustine who at one time was was a very liberally-minded man studying rhetoric, read the Greek philosophers, etc., etc., but then subsequently was converted to Christ because he was very interested in rhetoric, so he made the mistake of going to listen to a very fine preacher just to study rhetoric, and instead he got converted. And he then went on to become the Bishop of Hippo and he became one of the all-time great Christian theologians. And this is what Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, said. He said, in my study of the Greek philosophers, I knew about the Word. I knew all all about what the Greek philosophers said about the Logos. But he said, it was only when I discovered the Scriptures that I discovered this superlative truth that the Word became that God moved down into our world. And it was that understanding that triggered his imagination. And he said to himself, this is amazing. This is remarkable. We are not now thinking of a rational idea that is unknowable and therefore unknown. We are thinking of a God who is person and who's come into our world in human form in order that we might know what God is like. So the Word was God, but the Word became flesh. Now, there were, in the days that John was writing, some people who believed that Jesus was divine but only seemed to be flesh. Now, in our day, there are lots of people who say Jesus was human, but some people have got the wild idea that he was divine. We've got to understand, as we read the Scriptures, that the Scriptures do not give us the freedom to hold either position. It's not he was either divine or he was human. It's not an either-or thing. We have the ultimate mystery here, that Jesus was God-man man, God. Utterly unique. It is a mystery. It is something that we cannot adequately understand. It is something that we cannot adequately explain. One of the reasons for that, of course, is this. When we have difficulty explaining something, we usually try to explain it analogically. By that I mean we think of an an analogy we think of a simile, we think of something, and we say, well, it is like such and such a thing. But there's no analogy for God being fully man and man being fully God at the same time and diminishing neither. There is a uniqueness in the Word who became flesh. Now, John goes a step further, and he says, the word became flesh, this is verse 14, and lived for a while among us. But the word that he uses here in the Greek is a very interesting word. It means literally, the word is to tabernacle among us. Now, if you're not sure what a tabernacle is, it was a kind of tent, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute. And we could say, if we want to use a sort of a colloquial expression, we could say, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us for a while. Or I think Eugene Peterson in the message says the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood for a while. But I want you to latch onto this word tabernacle just for a minute, because John uses that advisedly. You'll notice that immediately after he said that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, he then says, and we saw his glory. Now, if you take that word tabernacle and you take that word glory, if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you'll know that John is now borrowing from what Moses wrote in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we have a record of what happened after Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt Well, through the wilderness and into the promised land. Well, Moses didn't go into the promised land, but Joshua led the remnants into the promised land. While they were in the wilderness, God gave them all kinds of instruction how they were to live and behave, both in the wilderness and when they got into the promised land. And this is what he did. He told them to build something that was called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And God said, that is the place where Moses and Joshua were to come as representatives of the people, and God would meet with them there. And they were to lead the people in worship from the tabernacle. Then God said, and I will presence myself among you. And the presence that was to come into the tabernacle was a cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. And when it was time for them to move on in their trek through the wilderness, the cloud would move on, and they would follow them. And the big statement was that this was evidence of the presence of God in their midst. Now, the name for that cloud was called the Shekinah, or the Glory, And you have this idea of the presence of God in their midst, in the tabernacle, being manifested in a glorious form. Now, John is clearly borrowing those ideas. This is what he says about Jesus. You know, you know, those of you who are Jews, he was saying to them, you understand about the tabernacle, you understand how God promised to be among his people, you know how the evidence of it was the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day, and this was a glorious manifestation of the presence of God, and it was at the very core of their existence. That's what gave them assurance. That's what gave them comfort. That's what gave them guidance. That's what gave them direction. And at one time, God was so displeased with the children of Israel that he, this is what he said to them. He said, I I'm going to send my messenger and he will lead you, but I will not go with you. Because he said, you are becoming so sinful that if I stayed with you in a very short time, I would have to exterminate you. And Moses went before the Lord and he pleaded with the Lord and he said, accept your presence, accept your glory, go with us, we will not go. We cannot go. God relented. God relented. Now John is borrowing all this and he's saying, in the same way that the children of Israel recognize the manifestation of the glory of God in the presence of God in the tabernacle in the wilderness, so now a new tabernacle has been built. The tabernacle is the body of a Jewish young man called Jesus of Nazareth. And in him we will see the glory for God is, Is presencing himself, presencing. Is there such a word? There is now. (laughs) Presencing himself among us. What a good thing I was listening at that particular point. Okay, so here we've got the picture. John says, The Word became flesh and tabernacled for a while among us, and we have seen his glory. What does he mean by seeing? His glory. If we look again in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, we will see that this whole idea of the glory of God in the tabernacle in the wilderness was wrapped up in a brilliant display, in a majestic display. And he talked about his presence in their midst. And, and, and when, when they asked to know more of his presence and asked to see more of his glory, God said to them, I'm not going to show you those kind of things. I'm simply going to show you who I really am. Now, all these ideas are wrapped up in the idea of glory. The presence of God the person of God, the majesty of God, the brilliance of God, the character of God. And this is what John says, when Jesus came down here and he pitched his tent among us, he lived in our neighborhood for a while. Do you know what happened? We understood that God was present in our midst. We are not now talking about a rational idea hidden somewhere in the universe. We are talking about the Word made flesh so that we could gaze upon Him and see what? The majesty of God. The brilliance of God. Know that God Himself was with us. We could see something of the character of God. We began to understand who God is is. And he describes him in a very special way. He said the glory that we saw was the kind of glory that you'd expect to see from the one and only Son. Now, I'm going to get technical just for a minute or two here. The word that is translated in the New International Version, one and only, is monogenes. And in the older translations of the Bible, it was usually translated the only begotten of the Father. The only begotten. Monogenes does not mean only begotten. That was a misunderstanding of the two Greek words from which monogenes comes. What it really means is one and only, or one of a kind. Now, Sometimes when people are introduced on stage, you know, because they're at the pinnacle of their profession, the person introduced them would say, "'Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the one and only monogenes.'" What he's saying is this, "'Jesus is the one and only Son of God.'" He is one of a kind. There is no one else remotely like him. Nobody comes close. He is absolutely unique. And guess what? As we watched him, as we spent time with him as eyewitnesses, as we were co-workers with him, we had every opportunity to see him up close and personal. And I'll tell you what we saw. We saw glory in him. We saw brilliance. We saw majesty. We saw manifestations of God. Just the sort of thing you'd expect to see from an utterly unique person. That is who lived among us. Now he goes on to say this this glory had two particular manifestations. He was full of glory, was full of grace. And truth. We saw the one and only glory, and it was full of grace and truth. Now, here again, John is probably borrowing from the Old Testament. The old idea of grace as far as his readers were concerned, was that the Old Testament taught that one thing that they knew about God as they were coming through the wilderness and as they were going into the promised land was that He would made a gracious covenant with them. And this gracious covenant was full of grace and it was full of truth. It was full of grace in that it was giving them something they could never have expected, and it was presenting them with something that they could never deserve and never earn. And it was full of truth in this sense. It was utterly and totally reliable. God had made a covenant of grace, and God had made a covenant of truth. He borrows those two ideas, and he transfers them now to Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the manifestation of God, We saw his character, we saw him in operation, we saw his majesty and his brilliance, and at every point, we were reminded of this, that God is a God of grace, and that God is a God of truth. And as we watched Jesus, we saw nothing but grace, and we saw nothing but truth. We saw nothing but him pouring out himself to give people what they didn't deserve and could never earn. And we saw him to be totally faithful and utterly reliable. He was utterly superb. John goes on in his gospel to say a couple of things that are very important if we're to understand Jesus, the Word made flesh being full of glory. This is what he says. When Jesus performed a miracle of Cana of Galilee, the first of his miracles, it said, he said it was a sign. John always calls them signs. Other people call them dynamic events. But John always calls a miracle a sign. And the reason for it is this. John was not just interested in describing the miracle, he wanted people to grasp the significance behind the miracle. It was a sign because it had significance. And as Jesus performed his first sign at the marriage of Cana of Galilee, do you know what John says? He says that he did this, he manifested his glory. Of course he did. As Jesus went about performing his miracles and they began to understand the significance behind them all, they began to see the person and the character and the brilliance and the majesty of God. When he turned the water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana, what was he doing? He's saying, You folks, your lives are, are just like a wedding where they've run out of wine. But he said, Give me the water and I will change it all and I will put sparkle back. A lot of people's marriages aren't like sparkling wine, they're like stale beer. He didn't say that. I said that. <laughs> I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth that he might object to. But here's the point. That is the significance of the miracle that he performed. He fed 5,000 families with five loaves and two fishes. And then he says, I am the bread of life. What's the significance? I can satisfy you at the deepest area of your longing. He opens the eyes of a blind man. Then what does he say? I am the light of the world. What's the significance of that? The significance of of that is he can open our eyes to see the reality of life and the reality of this world and the reality of who God is. He raises Lazarus from the dead and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what's the significance of that? The significance of that is, he explained, if a man dies and he believes in me, yet will he live again. And all these things Jesus walked around and John watched him and he said, There's the glory. There's the glory. Look at him, he's full of grace, and he's full of truth. And all these signs are simply illustrations of who he is. But then there's another interesting thing that John says about the glory. He says at one point that the Holy Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That was during Jesus' public ministry. But then at another point, talking about the glory, Jesus says this, Father, is it possible for you to deliver me from this thing? And he's talking about the cross. And then he said, no, no, that's not necessary. I won't ask you to deliver me because I came into the world for this reason. Instead, this is what I'm going to ask. Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the worlds were made. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. Is God glorified in the cross? Do we see the brilliance and the majesty and the character and the person of God in the cross? Oh, yes, like nowhere else. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, what do we see? We see what God is really like. We see a God whose heart is broken for a needy world. That's what God's like. What else do we see on the cross? We see God's utter revulsion against sin. We've got all kinds of polite words for it. God hasn't. He is revolted by it. And it must be judged, for it separates a human being from God. That's what God's like. And when we look at the cross, what do we see? We see God in infinite grace, assuming not only our humanity, but assuming our sin and bearing our judgment. And that's his glory. We see the glory in the person Of the Lord Jesus. So what is the whole point of the word becoming flesh? And the answer is, in order that we might come to this solid conviction, that it is in Christ that grace is found. It is in Christ that truth is discovered. It is in Christ that God is known. It is in Christ that that which is stable Is found. It is in Christ that salvation alone is to be found. And I arrive at that solid conviction. And if I haven't done that this Christmas time, I missed the point of Christmas. For that was why the Word became flesh, that I might see His glory, full of grace and truth. Well, moving right along. Not quite quickly enough, I'm afraid, but let's do it anyway. Here's the second thing. When we look into the visitation from space, and we see the Word made flesh, we begin to understand the blessing that comes from receiving His grace. Look at verse 16. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Now, He's already told us that He came full of grace, now he's saying out of this fullness of grace we have benefited we have received well grace is extended but faith needs to appropriate it when jill and i got married uh, jill's father bill Ryder, who was a very quiet man and a very successful businessman had many business interests in the United Kingdom and Ireland, and also in Austria. And so he said to me very quietly, uh, Stuart, he said, I don't know what plans you made for your honeymoon, but uh, he said, if you, uh, if you like to uh, drive in the car that I'm going to give you both as a wedding present, which he did, if you'd like to drive in, in, in the car over to Austria, uh, you'll find a little town called Feldkirch, and uh, if you go to Hauptstrasse there, and he gave me the number, he said, you'll find a lady lives there called Madame Dubsky And he said, I do business with her. And he said, I have funds over there. He said, if I bring them over here, the tax people here will want 90% of them. So I don't bring them here. I'll leave them there. And he said, if you just identify yourself to M- Madame Debsky, uh, she will give you an envelope. And he said, there'll be enough money there for you to have a, 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 a good time. That, that, that's grace, folks. <laughs> so I said, oh, no, really, I couldn't, do, I couldn't do that. No, I didn't. I said, could I have that ad- ad- address again? <laughs> you see? And so I, 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 got the, I got out the map, and I found the road down to Austria. We drove right across the continent to Austria. We found Felkirk. We found Hauptstrasse. We found the number. We went to the door. I knocked on the door, and I said, Madam Debsky." and she said, ah, oh, Mr. Frisco, Mr. Frisco, come in. And we came in, and she had a big fat envelope there stuffed with Austrian shillings. And we struggled to spend it all in three weeks, the only time in my life that that has happened. And he said, Don't bring any of it back. And here was grace. And out of his fullness, we received grace upon grace. But you know something? A lot of people haven't discovered that's why Jesus came. They haven't discovered that his grace is abundant. They haven't really got around to discovering that by faith they are to receive it. And I want you to notice something else here. He says, out of his fullness, we have all received one blessing after another. Literally, what it says is one grace instead of another. One grace instead of another. This is what Philo says, talking about graces. He said, God gives graces to us. And then when we're finished with one grace, he gives, quote, others in their stead, and third ones in the place of the second. That's a little clumsy, but I love this idea. This is what John is saying. He's saying, out of the fullness of Jesus' grace, we receive grace. But it's like we receive one grace for one thing, and then something else comes along. We need another grace for it. So we get the second one in place of the first one. But then something else comes along, and he gives us new, new grace. And he gives us grace, the third one, in the place of the second. It's like I'm, I'm in a situation, and I'm afraid. I'm really afraid. <laughs> and, and I don't know which way to turn. And then I remember that Jesus has promised, I, I, uh, I, I have all power in heaven and on earth, and I'm with you always, so just, just get going. And, and, and in the sheer grace of his promise, I, I receive out of the fullness of his grace. And in that particular situation, my fear is handled. And I begin to discover courage. But then I get so courageous, I get very cocky. And I, I just going along, I fall flat on my face, on my evangelical nose, anyway. So I fall flat on my evangelical nose, it, it's, it's very humiliating. I'm, I'm, I'm totally embarrassed by this sort of thing. And, and God says, "Now you're going to need grace to deal not with fear now. You're going to need grace to deal with embarrassment. And so he gives me grace in this situation. And then I come into another situation, and I'm suddenly confronted by a terrible temptation. And I, I am so weak before this temptation. And, and then he gives different grace. And he, 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 it's out of his fullness, out of his fullness, that we see grace instead of grace. Instead of grace. Instead of grace. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. All you need to write across all the eventualities of life is one word. Enough. Where the focus is not on the eventualities, the focus is on Jesus Full of grace and truth, who out of his fullness offers you one grace instead of another, instead of another, instead of another. What you're struggling with today is it fear? Is it embarrassment? Is it a big temptation? Is it doubt? I've got news for you there is a special grace available to you. Whereby his spirit, he will make available to you, not necessarily a way of getting out of that situation, but he will give you grace, listen very carefully, to allow you to live well in the situation. So what are the ramifications? of the word becoming flesh. What are the ramifications of Jesus coming at Christmas time? Well, the first one is, it gives me a sense of profound significance because I've seen his glory. And secondly, it gives me this overwhelming sense of sufficiency because I can count on his abundance of grace at all times. And thirdly, I'll just introduce this to you. The fact that Jesus came gives me assurance that comes from knowing that Jesus is God himself. What does he go on to say? The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the fullness of this grace, we have all received one blessing after the other. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one who's ever seen God, but God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. One of the tasks of a preacher is exegesis, and the other task is exposition. You say, don't start on that now. All right, I won't. Exegesis simply means the task of unraveling what the text is saying, making it plain, and then presenting it to people. The Greek word for exegesis is what is used here. And this is what it says. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has exegeted him. As Jesus moved around, his life was one big sermon Entitled, the Father. This is what the Father is like. And I want you to know something. Jesus not only exegeted the Father, He is the one and only God. Now listen. Human beings are incorrigibly religious. Human beings, you drop them down anywhere, they'll find something to look to, something to, to be at, upon, something to worship. Somewhere in the... Might be nothing more than the Packers. It might be their family. It might be money. It might be their jobs. They'll find something to worship. Somewhere along the line. And anything that I worship that is not contained in who Jesus is as an exegesis of the Father, listen, is an idol. It's an idol. And what we need to do, as we look at who the Word who became flesh really is, is take the posture of Thomas, who'd been a doubter, But when he really had the scales taken from his eyes and he saw the wonder of Jesus, do you remember what he did? He knelt at Jesus' feet and he says, my Lord and my God. John says one other little thing here. He says the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law is the mirror that shows me what I am. And it's not a pretty picture. Jesus gives me the soap to change what I am. And as I understand that, and I understand who he is, and I understand who he was before the beginning, and I recognize all the information we have about him, my heart is filled And I say, my Lord and my God. And guess what? That fills my heart with assurance. Because now I know who my Lord and my God is. And I know why I'm here. And I know why I'm to live. And I know what I'm supposed to do with my life. So what are the ramifications of the visitation from space? Well, the first one is this. I have a very, very strong conviction... That Jesus is the very focal point of my life because I've seen his glory and nobody else is going to take his place. Secondly, I have a tremendous sense of sufficiency because I've tasted enough of his grace to recognize that he gives one grace instead of another and I am sufficient at all times. He is able to make all grace abound toward you so that you always having all sufficiency in all things at all times, might abound and do every good work. That's how Paul describes it to the Corinthians. And not only that, I go through life with calm, settled assurance. Why? Because I know my God, and I know who is in charge. I don't know what the future holds. I do know the one who holds my future. And all this comes out of understanding what Christmas is all about. So I hope you didn't trivialize it. I hope you laid hold of it. Let's pray together. We thank you, dear Lord, for this statement concerning Jesus, who he really is. We do apologize for the fact that we have an inordinate tendency to make God in our image, instead of being humble enough to look at the revelation of the one who moved into our neighborhood, lived our life, and showed us who God is. Went to the cross and showed us the intimate dimensions of who God is, full of grace and truth, drawing us to himself. The amazing thing, dear Lord, is this, that you came unto your own, and your own did not receive you. But the good news is, to all who received you, who believed on your name, you gave them the right to be called the children of God. Lord, may we be found among that number, full of conviction that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Full of sufficiency because we receive one grace instead of another. Full of assurance because we know our God and we know he knows the way we take. Write these things deeply on our heart. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.